Welcome to the Possibility Action Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton, aka Possibility Man. We're committed to bringing you guests who strive to better people's lives and serve as a force for good in the world. Our guest today is Portia Louder. She has a background in photography and is a former real estate investor. She was derailed by circumstances which landed her in federal prison for almost five years. But prison didn't break her, it transformed her. Today, she is a teacher, mentor, and speaker, whereby she shares a powerful story of compassion, forgiveness, and friendship. She's the author of the new book, Living Louder. Portia, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much, Stephen. I'm honored to be here. Well, I'm excited about talking with you. But first, this program, though, to our listeners and our viewers, follow, like, and share this podcast wherever you find it. Your support matters. Our sponsor information is below the description of this show. Portia, you're all over the World Wide Web today. How are you handling your newfound celebrity? Oh, no, not at all. But I am grateful that people are willing to listen to something that I have to say occasionally, so. <laughs> yeah, well, I tell you, I found you on LinkedIn, and when I saw your story, I knew that you were a good match for the Possibility Action Network, but I want to roll back a little bit. What was it like for you in high school? Ooh, that is a hard question. Um, so my first real struggle, when I look back at myself, was really relationships, just not knowing who I was and thinking that you know, what boys thought of me is what mattered most. Mm -hmm. And so I'm the oldest of seven children and I'm pretty stubborn and like to do things my way. So I struggled in school. I really did. And um, I started to, you know, I, I guess I did what a lot of high school kids do. I started to drink and, and mess around a little bit that way, but relationships were really my biggest struggle. And mm -hmm. You know, I remember having a teacher that said to me, um, you know, you could do anything you want if you just apply yourself. And and I just didn't even have an idea of what he meant. I just thought I was going to have kids and I was going to be done. That was it. And so it took me a while to figure out that that I had something just in me other than just being a mom that I could accomplish. So, so would you say that you struggle with self-confidence, self-worth, or was that a part of it? Yeah, and I think, you know, self-confidence is, it's an interesting thing because you can put all that bravado on. Like I was, I guess, I don't know how you would call it, but I, I put on a pretty good show that I had it all figured out, but I was really terrified on the inside. I was scared of, um, the thought of going to college was overwhelming to me. Structure was difficult. My my parents were pretty non-traditional. I say they were like hippies back before it was a thing to be a hippie, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so there wasn't a lot of structure in the home. And I just had a hard time with, um, with focusing on something and then seeing it through. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking for that immediate type gratification. So I'm like, I'm just going to get married and have kids or, uh -huh. you know, that type of thing. I got it. So were there other ambitions that you have? You mentioned you wanted to get married and have kids, but was there something else in your heart that was churning? No, really, there wasn't. Um, it took me becoming a single mother. I had my first child young and going through some, some hard things 
And then, you know, I grew up in a small town in Utah. So it was just, I really hadn't even been out of that town. I had never been on an airplane until I was already a mom and had a child. And then my, my dad got transferred to the city in Utah, which is Salt Lake City. And I, when I came to visit, I could see that I could have more. You know, that was the first time I went, man, I, I could get a job or maybe I could do something with my life. And my uncle owned a photography studio. And so I, I went to work for him. And that was like the first time that I really had some confidence at what I could do other than being just a mom, which isn't just a mom, but still where I knew that I had this identity separate that I could accomplish what I wanted to in life. So, uh -huh. so photography was your initial career? path that you were following but no but you also were in real estate were you not so how did you get involved with real estate right so i mean i i spent 20 years as a photographer uh -huh. and built a company and it was doing quite well but um the way that i got into real estate and, and we can talk more about this but um i've also struggled with addiction throughout mm -hmm. my life and i've had periods where i've been in recovery and done quite well and the real estate market all over the country, but in Utah especially, was booming between the 2005 to 2008 time era. And I, you know, at the time I had young children and I thought I need to cut back on work. As a photographer, I was very busy. I was photographing, I had some employees, but around 200 weddings a year, which mm -hmm. is so many weddings <laughs> with engagements and bridals and all of that. And so um, with the real estate market booming, I started investing and I just, I had some neighbors that were buying and selling things. And so I learned what I could and bought my first lot and flipped it and did quite well. And, but at the time too, I was struggling with my addiction. So I can see my judgment wasn't great. Mm -hmm. And I thought the quick fix was to go from photography to real estate and make more money. And in the end, it just, it didn't work out that well for me. <laughs> Okay. You mentioned you struggled with addictions. Um, at what point were you introduced to drugs? And if you don't mind sharing with us, what was your drug of choice? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was 21, I had a, a difficult experience with, you know, with my kids. I Again, in and out of relationships. And, and I remember coming home that night and I had a bottle of just pain pills in my cupboard because I would get migraine headaches. And so I took one and I thought, you know, just for a headache, but it just helped solve that uncomfortable feeling inside. And I just, I used those and then asked the doctor for more. And then pretty soon I'm addicted. I'm using them on a regular basis. And so that's been my biggest struggle is prescription drugs, which mm -hmm. aren't that much different than street drugs, you know, substance wise, they still do the same damage if they're used the way that, you know, if you're abusing them. Um, and I think, you know, anyone that struggled with addiction just knows that it is a, it's a life, like a lifelong battle for me. I, right now I have been in recovery from my addiction for almost eight years and I work hard to stay that way. I work with people that struggle with addiction and, and stay in, in recovery that way. So. So did, were you able to keep this a secret or did, did, people, did your friends know about it, your family? Yeah, so it started out a secret, but, you know, once things get progressively worse, my family could see what was going on. I actually lost my job, the job that I had because I was using, you know, my, I wasn't dependable. I wasn't showing up on time. So I'm just really, was really struggling. And that was a few years in for, for a while, you can keep the addiction under wraps, but eventually it, it, 
just took over my life. And my parents were helping take care of my kids at the time. And I came home late one night and my son had been waiting by the window crying for me. My mom said, what would it be that could cause you to leave this little boy who loves you so much? He needs you. And, and that was the first time that I really just really reached out. And for me, it was to a God, which I didn't have a relationship with at the time, but also to a neighbor that was in recovery that had, was an alcoholic, but he had been sober for a while. And I just said, help me. I can't do this. I, I don't like, it was up to that point. I could, you know, make a commitment to myself. I'm not going to do that anymore. But at this point I couldn't keep promises to myself or anyone else in my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you began looking for help. That, that's awesome. So yeah, something was leading you for sure. In that right. Now, but then you, you you mentioned in your story that you were involved with mortgage fraud. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. So when I first got involved in real estate and investing, I was just buying and selling lots, which is perfectly legal. And then in time, I, in fact, I remember the first time someone introduced what they called an equity deal to me. So you buy a house you get a higher appraisal on it, you borrow more money from the bank than the house is really worth, right? And then you flip the house. And at first I was like, I would never do that. You know, there's no way. I mean, I just wouldn't. But in time, you know, I was buying lots of lots and I'm owing more money and my debt ratio is going crazy. And I am using prescription drugs at this point in time. And and I just got involved in them. I just kept, you know, at first I was like, no. And then pretty soon, you know, cause I don't just struggle with drugs. This is something that I know about myself that I like to hustle. <laughs> I like to do deals, you know? And, and so I'm really careful with that now. You know, I found because of my experiences and the pain I went through, um, I try to live a life of meaning and really my integrity is, you know, honesty is my highest value. But at that point in time, just didn't see how important that was. And it, it wasn't until it was too late that I, I could see what I had done. So, so when did, when were things, when did things fall apart and what was that like? Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. it was terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> nobody wants the FBI to show up at their door. That's mm-hmm. just, that's a fact, you know, it's, it's scary. And, and at first they started investigating and talking to your neighbors. You don't want that either. When the FBI starts asking questions, you're just like, you know, and, and I just denied it. I kept saying, no, what I did wasn't that bad. There's a lot of other people doing worse things. The banks were aware they, they were involved too, which there's no power in that, you know, the power would have been, okay, I made this mistake. Let's deal with it and move forward. But I, I was so scared. And I think I was so scared because I thought, what will I be as a person? If you take, if you take my identity as, you know, if you put me in prison, I mean, how will I survive that? What will my community think? Will my marriage last? How will my kids, you know, financially, all of those things were so scary. And so rather than just saying, I made a mistake, let's get through it. I chose to deny it until it got to a point where I had to walk into a federal courthouse, Mm -hmm. which was the loneliest and saddest day of my life. You know, the day that I I realized when you're sitting in a courtroom and they say the United States of America versus Portia Lauder, yeah. it's a wake up call. <laughs> I got you. Well, how did your how did your children handle this? And from your sense, you know, from your your vantage point. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had children. I had two older children that were. I don't think it was good for any of us, for mm-hmm. sure. Especially, you know, all of my kids hurt in their own way. 
I had children that were teenagers and, and they had grown up with me fighting this. And I mean, it went on for a long time because the, the real estate deals I was involved in were from 2005. I didn't get indicted until 2010. So they, and with the federal system, they can investigate for a long time. And during that time I lived in denial. I kept thinking, oh, I'll get out of it. I, I spent every dime we had to fight it. I hired lawyers. And in the end, you know, if I could have just not done any of that and just said, okay, I made a mistake, let's deal with it. But so my kids, they just thought mom's going to handle it. Mom can do this. Mom's not going to go to prison. And then when it came down to it, my daughter just looked at me, my, my teenage daughter, and she said, I don't believe anything you say anymore, you know, mm -hmm. and that, and she had every right to feel that way. So it took a lot of, um, a lot of work while, you know, because if I did, I was sentenced to seven years that day, you know, my range was zero to seven years. And so there I am in a courtroom looking back at my family and seeing what I've actually done. The reality of that has, has become very clear for me. And I apologized. The judge said, Miss Otter, I'm giving you seven years in federal prison and you'll be a mother again someday. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm always a mother. He can't do that, you know? <laughs> I mean, but but what he meant was, you know, you're gonna have some time without your kids here. And and so my life was never the same after that. I mean, I walked out of that courtroom. I had eight weeks to say goodbye to my kids, and I looked, I looked around at the world and it looked completely different. I thought, how could I have traded something so meaningless such as money for something so precious which is the time with my children uh -huh. you so know? Your, your mindset was beginning to change even before you entered prison oh yeah tell what about emotions i mean i could just i can only imagine you know that i would have a lot of thinking and a lot of emotions what about oh, my you? oh i was devastated i i drove on our way home i couldn't speak it took me an hour to utter a word i really felt like how could i have done this like I'm my whole country, you know, it's just, I felt like me against my whole, and I thought I must be the most terrible person. I mean, he didn't sentence me in the middle. He gave me the word, the, the strongest sentence he could, you know, and I did this. Like, I just kept going, I did this. How could I have done this? And it was shocking. It was shockingly painful. And I wondered how the world could keep going. I thought, why are people driving by, you know, like it didn't happen. It just, it just shook me and changed my view of life. Mm -hmm. And it's never been the same. Um, it was like a death. It really was. It felt like a death. I mean, I had a seven-year-old daughter. Uh -huh. So you can imagine when he said seven years, I'm like, I'm leaving my daughter for as long as she's been alive. It was a shock. Sure. Right. I'm going to throw a couple of emotions and tell me if any of them came up for you. Mm -hmm. Guilt. Did that come up for you? Sorrow, guilt, sorrow, um, guilt would come later. I think at that point it was such shock that it was just like, I mean, I felt guilt for so many years, just dragging my family through this. It was like guilty, but once I accepted it, it was just absolute sorrow. And then in time, um, when I when I got to prison, there was a lot of work that had to be done to apologize and make things right. And that's when the guilt came in. And the, mm -hmm. yeah. So. What about anger directed outward or inward? That came later, too. Um, I think that I think it was shock. It took me just shock. Like. It took me a while and then I was angry. Oh, I was angry when I. When I got to prison, I was angry at myself and I was angry at the judge. And I felt like 
I mean, it took me a long time when I got there to realize I had done this to myself. Not, it wasn't the government. It wasn't the prosecutor. It was nobody but me. And then I was so angry at myself, I could hardly stand it. And, mm -hmm. and it took a lot of work to get to a place where I could just, I knew at a certain point that the only way we could build a new life was based on truth mm -hmm. and that I had to completely own this. What helped, what was very painful, but helped me was when I was in prison, I didn't get a lot of visits because federal prison, you don't go to prison in the state that you live in. So my family was trying to recover financially while I was, and my husband stayed with me through this. And so I am, I start out in Dublin, California, which is kind of by Oakland. And the first year um, I saw them twice, you know, and then I was transferred to Minnesota and I, I spent three years there. And I remember when my kids came and my son was angry, he had a chip on his shoulder. And my husband told me he had told the a school administrator off because he said something like, I don't want to see you go down the path your mom went down, which Jackson was just like on fire. And they, and, and, and I, told my husband when he told me that I said I don't want to see him do that either Chad he was yeah but he really it, Jackson's not doing okay you know so they came out and I'm sitting there with my kids and my and I looked at him and I said Jackson I did this to us this wasn't your principal this wasn't the government this wasn't the police this was your mother making a really bad choice and I'm so sorry I hurt you like this yeah. And he just looked down and he goes, mom, it's too hard. It's too hard. And then my daughter, she said, I'm so depressed, mom. It's, I'm tired. I'm the only one going through this. And of course, there's other kids that have parents incarcerated. But where we lived, she couldn't see that. And she felt so alone. And that was heartbreaking. But it was also a place of truth to start to build a new life. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. so, you know, and then you, you know, you're, you're in prison. The doors have been shut. Gosh, you know, you're there. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get to um, how do you, what's life like in prison? Oh, goodness. <laughs> it is, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, the first three days I was in so much pain, I could hardly get out of the cell. I just thought, I can't do this. Everyone is wearing khaki. Nobody's got a smile on their face. Everyone looks so depressed. There's about a thousand women. And I walked out to a table and I sat next to a girl named Bubbles because we all have nicknames in there. <laughs> and, and I was crying. I just kept looking out the window going, you know, just, I was just too, too emotional to hardly speak. And she looked over at me and she goes, you're going to be okay, baby. You're mm -hmm. going to get better. It will get better. I promise. I mean, that was the beginning for, of me understanding that all these women had suffered like me mm -hmm. and they, they were reaching out to me in ways that you know, I don't know if I could have done for others. And so I was so uplifted by others. I mean, it, we really, you see this stuff on TV about prison that looks so harsh and hard. It wasn't like that. There was so much kindness and compassion and women who have been through the hardest circumstances who were reaching back, helping me. Mm -hmm. But it's a lot of time of doing the same thing over and over and over. The schedule's the same, the food's the same. Sometimes people get uptight and there are fights and things like that. But, you know, there's also a lot of tenderness. Um, it's boring when people ask me, did you get bored? Oh, yeah, I got bored. I read a lot. We all have jobs in there. So, you know, I, I worked in education. I got a job doing I wrote a curriculum about photography and taught that. I mean, we help each other through, mm -hmm. but it's it's boring. It's long. Um, it's 
it's completely separated from the outside world. I mean, you don't have cell phones, you don't have technology. So you, you have this beautiful connection, right? Because mm -hmm. the world takes that away. So even though it's hard and painful, there's also this tenderness and connection. And, you know, I didn't understand a lot because I had never been through the system or anything, but I come to find out most people in prison have had the hardest lives. Their mm -hmm. parents have struggled and they're struggling and they're trying so hard to make those changes. It wasn't at all like I thought it would be, that's mm -hmm. for sure. Right. So you mentioned uh, tears and you also mentioned pain. Mm -hmm. Was that coming from, what was it, where was that coming from? Was it depression? What, what was that? Oh, well, I think that the, the separation was a shock, you know, because mm -hmm. I had family and stuff. So to be separated as a mother from your kids, that's really painful. Being separated from my husband, keep in mind, I've been in relationships since I was a young girl. So I've never done life alone. So for me to be separated from everything that I'm so used to was very painful. Um, even just your community and, you know, you're just kind of almost dead to the world when you're in there, you have each other, but you know, the pain, the other pain was um, devastation because of what I had done. You know, mm -hmm. my family's struggling. They are out there now financially broken. My kids are trying to do life without me and the, the pain of the choices that I made to my community. I mean, what was I thinking? You know, the reality of that. And that makes you angry. The pain makes you angry because it's hard to express those feelings. We didn't have support groups. I started one because we didn't have a place where we could say, I'm feeling this way. It was like, you better be tough and hard other than, you know, your roommates are sitting next to bubbles. Those, those are moments of tenderness. But to actually express and talk about your feelings, there wasn't a place for that. So I created one because we needed it. We need it there so much, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I was surprised to see in your profile about forging friendships. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, I got the feeling that you were talking about real friendships. In oh, prison. yeah. My sense of it is like you, know, you got these gangs in prison and you're with the gangs for safety. But, but you say you, you formed some real, real meaningful friendships. Oh, my goodness, yes. Mm -hmm. Some of my best friends I met in prison were still so close. I met women, I mean, I could give you story after story of people that people that did years and years that were amazing and such great examples. People that came in young and were just grateful for every little thing I could do for them, teaching them to read, teaching. I mean, it isn't the gang stuff. They make, they make that look a lot worse than it is. It doesn't exist for women. And for men, um, I have several friends that are men that have been in prison and I still even find them very tender and, and they'll even tell you, you know, I miss the, the friendship and the camaraderie that we had in prison. So what about um, cross-cultural interactions? You know, once again, I know yeah. prison from television. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. So what about that? Were people able to cross cultural like, barriers? So with women, we mix. We don't care. Like mm -hmm. I would be holding hands with it didn't matter what religion, if you're Muslim, if you're Christian, if we would we would pray together. And we would live in the same rooms and support each other. So um, I loved the cultural differences. Now, some people don't like that. There are people that kind of stick to their own culture. But I, I actually found people to be, you know, I'm Caucasian and, and white collar. And I was in a, a higher security female federal prison. So I'm with a lot of people that are either drugs or different races. I loved mixing it up. I didn't really care for just my people. I wanted to get to know other people, but there are some people that are just kind of stick to their own. Mm -hmm. However, um, 
I've heard it's different in the men institute, the men's institutions, but even but even the men that I know, they're all different uh, races and cultures. They're pretty respectful of each other. I know that they have to do it different in higher security institutions because they're it's just the way they do things. They have gangs and problems differently, but I I didn't experience that. Yeah, you know, in reviewing you, I got this feeling that there was some type of inner transformation that went on with you. Now, I don't want to assume that, but that's the feeling I got. What can you, how would you respond to me on that point? Oh my goodness. My life completely changed for the better. Like I completely see the world from a different perspective. I went in with one view. I had lived in Utah my whole life. And I thought that the world was just my way. You know, my parents were, were upper middle class. So financially, I didn't have those kinds of struggles. And when, while I was in prison, first of all, I got to a very real place with owning my life and the choices I had made. I found this empowerment with me as a woman. I kind of grew up there. Like I found myself instead of always thinking I needed a man, always thinking it was about my kids. It's like, this is me. I've got to find me. And I found my own skills and my own inner beauty. And, and then I met these women whose lives were so much harder than mine. And for me to see them coming from poor backgrounds and hard backgrounds and, and yet the love and tenderness that we shared, it was like, I came home and I couldn't even go back to work as a photographer. I tried for a while, but I was like, this just feels meaningless in comparison to the work I've done with women in prison. And so I went to work at a treatment center for girls with addiction. And I work on a, the sobriety board foundation so that I can help women get into housing that can afford it. And my life is completely different because of that experience. Okay. So, yeah. I want to stay with prison because I'm, I'm so curious here. How would you explain, Portia, discovering this inner strength in prison. Where in, you know, uh, once again, I don't want to guess, where do you think this is coming from? This, because it's, well, I mean, you know, my, my sense of it is that you are blossoming on, you know, your inner world was blossoming even though you were incarcerated. So I'm trying to right, figure out. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's not unusual. I just think the media doesn't show it because I met right. lots of women that have gotten out and they have done amazing things with their lives. However, um, not everyone does. I mean, it's just like out here, you know, there's people that transform and change their lives. For me, I believe in God. I have a higher power. I have faith in something bigger than me. And I felt this connection with all of us. And I felt more loved than I've ever felt when I was in prison. I felt mm -hmm. so loved and cared for and supported and strengthened. I felt this strength above my own that guided me. I never felt unsafe. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's surprising because people say, did you ever feel scared? I didn't. I never felt unsafe or scared. I felt totally supported and protected. And so, you know, that my faith grew a lot while I was there. But also, I just think I was, it was an experience that I was meant to have, which sounds so goofy, you know, but I believe that I'm on this earth. My whole vision changed after this experience. And I think that it is part of my purpose and mission on this earth. Okay, let me let me get this right now. That that prison seems to, I mean, most of us said that's got to be a hard thing. But then you just said that you think it was meant for you. Come on, tell me more about that. <laughs> it's so funny because I was sitting there one day, looking around in my bunk at all of these women, 
And I got the strongest feeling that this was exactly part of my purpose on this earth. Like it was just who I was here to be and that my life had been, I, you know, now that doesn't make sense because I had to do some really dumb things to get to prison. But yet I could see that I had a purpose. I could see my story unfolding in a completely different way because of this experience. And I believe that my, my purpose is to kind of connect people that haven't had it to the humanity of people that are there. Because yeah. I think that the, the media and everyone else makes it so harsh that we kind of think of just bad people in prison or us versus them. But that's not my experience. Yeah. I experienced this human, beautiful connection and I want the world to know that view. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like you needed time to discover who you who you are yes. beyond all of that other stuff and you discovered that in prison. So let's talk about re-entry now. And, uh, I'm not sure what the word is, my word, re-entry into the world. What oh, yeah. was that like, getting out and starting your life again? Yeah, it was hard. I'm going to be honest. Like the first, when I first, I came to a halfway house in Utah. Mm -hmm. And so at a halfway house, you're, you can get a job and you prepare to go back to your house. And you're, now there's men and women, not just women. So you're connecting, you know, that way. And I sat there for like two days on a couch and I looked around and I thought, I just want to go back to prison. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I even said to this guy, this guy was walking by, he's like, are you okay? And I said, no, man, I feel so alone. And he said, you'll be all right. He goes, it's mm -hmm. going to get better for you. It was a, it was hard to come back because we live so close to each other. Like my neighbor, I know what my neighbor's going through. You know, if they, if they have a family member, you know, I had my, my one neighbor, her brother committed suicide. We all circled her in prayer. We were right there for her. Well, out here, I felt alone. Like, it's not like we're as open and, and with all of our struggles. And so that was hard. And then just like going back to work. I mean, I've been gone for a long time. So technology's changed. And I mean, I felt weird around my kids. It just took time. It takes time to come back and get comfortable. It took me a year took me a few months but it took me a year before I you know like driving is really scary and just all the things that you haven't had to do because your life's been the same choices first time I went to Walmart it freaked me out now a lot of guys will run you'll see it it's so funny because they think someone that's done 20 years is like so scary oh no he'll go to Walmart and he'll run back to the car or the bus in tears because it's just overwhelming. <laughs> you know, we're scared when we get out. It's scary for us to come back to this world. <laughs> That's interesting. I want to throw out a couple of words now and I want to, I want to ask you what, you, what you've learned. Mm -hmm. So my first word, are you willing to play this game with me? Okay. Okay. So my first word is the past. That, what I mean is that, you know, for people who have never been to prison, some of them have trouble dealing with their past. So what did you learn about dealing with the past from prison, if anything? Oh yeah, I appreciate that question. Um, I had an experience in prison. <clears throat> I watched a woman get up in front of 70 women and read a list of everything she had ever done to hurt anyone. It was a really thorough list. And there was so much power in the room when she did that, that I, I could see that for me to own my past, every step of it was going to give me a new future. Like if I'm totally responsible for my past, then I can move forward, right? And I have, most of us in there are trying to pretend it didn't happen. We don't wanna accept that, that's too painful. But this girl just confronted it head on. 
And when she got done, the therapist in the room said, I just have one question. What would make you care so much about your future that you would stand here today and be so completely honest with all of us? And she said, I've tried everything to change my life except telling the truth. And I'm either going to tell the truth and have a future or I'm going to die. I can't keep going. And that's when I knew that my way forward was to own where I had been. And it, it, I did it. I wrote my list. I made a spreadsheet and I rewrote my life. And I, and I saw my life more as an observer instead of seeing it as this happened to me. It was like, this, and I could, and I had more compassion for myself and other people that I had been involved with, you know, and I, I wrote letters to my kids telling them how I felt. And I think because I did that, I was able to write a book when it came time because I had done the work, you know, that introspective work. So I'm a big believer in just figuring out why you are, where you are, what you've been through, owning that, and then having the power to create a new future. That's great. That's great, Portia. I love that response. Uh, you already mentioned one of the, what my second word, but I'm going to throw it out there now. What did you learn in prison from your experience there about compassion? Oh, my goodness. It's probably my favorite word. <laughs> um, because we just truly cannot imagine when we look at a person what their experiences have been. And I think when there's power in compassion, when we can look at somebody with love and compassion, it strengthens them to see the best in themselves as well. And I think as I look at others with compassion, I have compassion for me instead of that young girl. And I, you know, thinking that, you know, how could you do that? I'm like, you only knew what you knew then. You didn't know who you really are then. So I can have compassion for myself as I would another young girl that I meet that doesn't know who she is yet, you know? Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, what did you learn, my third word, about resilience? About mm -hmm. the resilience in a human being? Yeah, well, I learned that we are much more resilient than we believe or than we can possibly comprehend, not just from myself, but from the women that I met. Um, I learned that even our trauma and the hardest things we go through have the seed in them of greatness. If we can address those and work through it, there's great growth in that, in those traumas. And, and it comes through resilience. It comes through just every day is a new day you get up that next day and you keep going and there you know i tell people i could never imagine a life this beautiful when i was dealing with the fbi i could never imagine a life this beautiful when i was a 17 year old girl and didn't know who i was and was pregnant with my first child you know the ending is still unfolding and is beautiful and you can't think that this very moment is all there is because mm -hmm. your hardest thing has the seeds of greatness in it. And so I, I learned resilience from the women around me because their lives were so hard and yet they still had so much beauty and meaning and, and purpose in their lives. So yeah, I, I love that too. That's great. My, my last word, I think, <laughs> is forgiveness. What did you learn? You know, we started a, a support group called the Forgiveness Support Group because every one of us struggled with forgiving ourselves. It was such a challenge. Um, I have learned that 
that it takes some effort. You know, it's not a, it's not an overnight thing. I mean, it's an easy word to say, but to forgive myself, I had to acknowledge that I had made those choices. And then I had to ask for forgiveness from my children. And it's a constant, you know, it takes time. Um, As far as forgiving others, I feel like it's freedom. You know, when you let go, as long as I have something with somebody else. And I, I mean, I, I thought my judge was just the worst guy. Like, how could he do this to me? I actually have nothing but love for him now because I'm so grateful for where I've been. But it, I had to come to a place where I said, he's just a person doing the best he could. She's just a, you know, and, and I, so I think that there's, there's freedom in forgiveness, mm-hmm. even with yourself, but it, it isn't easy. It just yeah. isn't. Yeah, you know, and we live in, I mean, life is not easy for a lot of people. And as you well know, some people get to a point where they just, you know, die by suicide. If you were, if you were, if you had the, the, the privilege of meeting someone who said, you know something, I'm done with life, this is it, what do you think you would say to them? Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. I would put my arms around them first and I would say, you can't see it yet, but the best is yet to come. There is something so beautiful in store for you. I had, okay, so I had, I had this opportunity. It's interesting that you say that. Because I had, I work at a mental health, um, a therapy office in group therapy. And I've been working with uh, some young adults Mm -hmm. who were struggling with depression. And one of them had been very suicidal and he had been working on it. And he came in one day and he was angry and he sat down. He said, I'm so tired of you telling me that it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. It's not good enough that I can get up and take a shower today. That's all I can do right now. I have nothing going for me. I know I could accomplish something. I'm tired and I want to end my life. And he went around the room. And when it was my turn, I said, you know, friend, I want you to imagine yourself someday standing in a room full of people. And I want, to, I want you to imagine that they're all struggling with depression. And I want you to see yourself saying to them, there was a time in my life where I couldn't get up before two in the afternoon. There was a time in my life where a shower was an accomplishment. And when those people see where you are after all that you've been through, you're giving them hope. Would that give meaning to this experience that you're going through right now? And he stopped and he looked at me and he said, I don't know. I'm going to think about it. And I said, well, can I plan on you being here tomorrow to tell me? He said, yeah. Um, so. Ah, that's awesome, Portia. Okay. You're, you're a speaker, you're a teacher, you're a mentor. Uh, what do you try to, what do you hope to flow through you as you share in those ways? Yeah. If there was one thing I could give others, it would be for them to know their worth, for mm-hmm. them to know, to be able to catch that vision of what they could become because I can see it in people. And I know that that helps when you can see someone, they can rise to that, but I want them to know what they're capable of. And so it's, it's a process. I work with people um, in, like I say, in addiction and mental health, and I spend quite a bit of time with them and I listen to them, you know, because I want to make that connection. And I think when you listen to someone, they know you care and then they, you gain some credibility with them. Mm-hmm. So it, it takes time. But when I see somebody catch a glimpse of who they are and they get that light and they have some hope, that's the coolest part of life right there. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. The, the word advocate also shows up, you know, in the many things that are looked at about you. 
Um, what kind of advocate do you see yourself as being today? Yeah, well, I do. I work with um, in the criminal justice reform arena. You know, I do that. I've been at, at our state capitol advocating for people to have, you know, for better jobs, to change the felon status, to. Um, but but I feel like my role's bigger than that, to be honest. Like I feel like because I've walked through it, I can change the way I want to be an advocate is I want the world to know what I know, which is the humanity of people that are there because yeah. you can't cage people for their whole life. If you know what they're capable of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh uh, boy. And your, your new book, when did your book come out by the way? When, it came out a year ago. So. A year ago. Mm -hmm. And you know something, I just love the title. Who, oh, thought, who thought of this play, the spin on louder? Was it you? <laughs> it was me. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny that you ask because I was working at this treatment center with these girls that struggle with addiction and we were thrown. I was writing it and stuff and they were reading my chapters and excited about it. And then I sent it to the girls in prison that were still incarcerated and they were reading it and sending me letters telling me they loved it. And I sat there one night with them and I said, it's called Living Louder. And they all looked at me and said, that's it. It's Living Louder. <laughs> yeah. it, it's so. perfect. I mean, you were you were meant to write this book. Yeah. <laughs> Living Louder. So just give us a little teaser. What do you try to do in this book? Okay. Well, I feel, you know, I share stories and they are, it, it's kind of my journey, you know, how I got there. And then. I share letters and stuff going back and forth, but it in each kind of a, in each chapter, it is a principle, you know, what I learned from this girl, whether it's compassion, one's titled compassion, um, uh, forgiveness, one's titled forgiveness, you know, and how, and the process it took to get there. And, and I learn it from a lot of the other women that I meet and, I mean, by the end, in my mind, you know, it starts out hard and painful. And mm -hmm. by the end, it's just beautiful. I mean, it's just like I, I, by the end, I'm sitting outside and I'm watching these girls and they're all dancing, you know, and they, we don't have, I mean, they're, they're, they're pointing to each other and then one would, they're in a big circle and we're sitting in the sun in the desert. And I'm feeling like this might be the most beautiful moment in my life. And I'm sitting here in prison on a park bench watching these women that have suffered so deeply have this kind of joy and it and it just it becomes this experience of i i gain this love and knowledge of myself and i find out how amazing these women are and and by the end i don't care about money or anything i have you know three t-shirts a pair of shorts and a pair of tennis shoes and i feel completely i have everything important in my life because of who i've become so mm -hmm. i like pe to take people on that journey you know and i talk about each of these characters, I meet different people and what their lives are like. And yeah, that's that's what it is. That's, that's great. You know, I, I, I see something. Uh, I'm going to throw it out there. <laughs> you may not respond to it. Living Louder, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool. I would love it because I, I yeah. want as many people to know what I know as I can get. Well, so. you know, what you, what you shared, I mean, this is going to touch a lot of people's lives for sure. Are you happy? I'm so happy. I'm living my best life. I'm 51. I have some grandkids now and I get to meet amazing people all the time. You know, they reach out to me and they've got stories. I just met a guy that was put in the system at eight years old and, and he's been involved in gangs and trouble. And now he's, he's free of that. And he's, yeah. 
you know, and those experiences just bless my life. So yes, I am so happy. That's wonderful. Well, look, I've learned a lot from life, from your story. So I'm glad that uh, of this opportunity to talk with you today. Is there anything else you wish to share with us that I haven't asked, that we haven't talked about? I think I would just say to anyone that's listening, please don't ever give up because mm. there were times in my life where I could not see what would unfold. I just couldn't see how I, I felt like I was in such a deep hole and I couldn't see a life this beautiful. Just know the best is yet to come. Please don't give up. Know that we're fighting for you. We're in it together and the world is cheering you on and you have an important purpose, something only you can do. You have a story to tell and we want to hear it. And that's what I'd say. There you have it. You've been listening to the Possibility Action Network podcast with our guest, Portia Louder. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton. Until next time, good day. Not alone, just keep on.